I want to welcome you uh, to this place today. It's a little bit different from what we had planned. Uh, We had planned to celebrate in a big way our 112th anniversary as a church, but, uh, but we decided that so that we could make sure we have the most people here possible. We're going to push that off to next week. So this morning I went scrambling for a message. What in the world do I preach? My mind went to Colossians chapter 2, and I want to invite you to take your Bibles and go to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be there here in, in just a moment. How many of you have, um, have ever seen the, the Born Identity movie series? All right. Man, it's some of my favorite, favorite movies. And, and the whole idea behind this series is there's, the, there's, this, there's this man who is a government assassin. He's been through all kinds of training. He is the premier government assassin. And um, he goes through many, many missions, but then all of a sudden something happens to where he has amnesia. And he can't remember who he is. And, uh, and, and so from this point, all three of these movies, and it's, it's, it's a long series, that is, is really caught up in him trying to figure out, who am I? What is my identity? Um, how did I get to this point of being this premier govern, government assassin? And who is it that put me in this position and taking down the bad guy? You know, so it's a, it's a classic, classic spy movie series. But um, we are all born with an identity, all of us. And, and it's an identity that needs to change, but it's an identity nonetheless. Now, the cool thing is that when our identity changes, when God changes our identity, he does it for good. And, and he doesn't mean for us to then go back to the old identity that we once had. So then as I'm thinking this morning about where we're at in the book of Ephesians, and, and I'm not, I wasn't quite prepared to, to give you the next passage that we, we got to there, but my mind went to Colossians chapter 2 here where we find out what it means to reject, to leave behind our old identity. And really that's what we're coming up on here in the book of Ephesians as we talk about what it means to mature as Christians, to leave behind the old and to embrace the new, to, to pull in, to live in the new identity that we have been given. And what this passage in Colossians chapter 2 does is it shows us that oftentimes we try to kind of go back to who we once were, but we have a new identity that we are meant to live in. This is who we are. So we're not like Jason Bourne trying to figure out who we once were. No, we know who we once were. And now we know how we can live moving forward. So Colossians chapter 2, let's read. and um, It says on the screen, verses 8 through 15, but I want to go back to verse 6. Verses 6 through 18. Here's what it says, excuse me, 6 through 15. Let's read together. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through, uh, through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, 
having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that in, this, in these moments, you will help us to understand your word and not only what it means, but how it applies to us. Father, we truly believe that anytime we open your word and study it, you've got something for us because your word is truth. It is life. Father, I pray that um, we will leave this place changed this morning. Not the same as when we came in, but rather closer to you in our relationship with you. We love you, Father. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I used the word moments ago that, that kind, of, um, kind of gives us the thrust of what we're talking about here today. It's the word rejection, all right, rejection. Um, some of you, when you were in um, high school, asked someone else, whether it was a guy or girl, to prom, and maybe they rejected you. They pushed you back, right? Don't raise your hand if that happened to you, but I've been rejected before, okay? I, I, know this under, I understand this idea of rejection. Well, this is what we're going to think about here as we work through this message, is the idea of rejection, of, of pushing away. And this passage is talking about what a believer is to reject. And there's two questions that we kind of work through here as we, as we talk through this. And the first one is, what is it we're supposed to reject? What do we reject? But then secondly, why do we reject those things? Why do we reject those things? So let's talk about what believers are to reject. Um, Look at the beginning of verse 8 with me there. Beginning of verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive, Paul writes. Now when Paul wrote this, he wrote this in Greek, in the language of the day, the common language of the day. And he used a word there that is only used one time in the whole New Testament. And this is a word that describes this idea of being taken captive. It's the word selegeo. And, and the, really the root of this is, is, is to, the understanding is to lead away as, as if you're, you're taking away a bounty or a spoil from a war, okay? Or, or maybe, maybe it's, it's the idea of a kidnapping, right? When, when, um, when there's a kidnapping that takes place, um, what is it that typically happens by the one being kidnapped? Well, according to every movie and every book I've ever read, they are fighting tooth and nail to not be kidnapped. They're, they're pushing away. They are fighting away, trying to get away from whatever it is that's trying to take them captive. All right, so we've got this mental image in our minds of, of rejecting. Here's what Paul says. He says, don't let anyone kidnap you. Don't let anyone take you somewhere where you're not supposed to go. He uses this forceful, convincing language in describing this rejection, this, this, this kidnapping. And what is it that believers are to reject? And that's what we find as we continue reading here. We are to reject, first of all, false philosophies. False philosophies. See to it, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Now, with this point, I include the word in there, false. False philosophy. To describe what's taking place. Because not all philosophy is bad. But by any stretch of the imagination, I took a couple of philosophy classes in, in college, and as much as I did not like those classes, one of the things that I learned was that there is a good, a true philosophy, but then there's also a lot of bad, false philosophy that's out there. And Paul is telling these believers to reject these harmful philosophies. 
And once again, in this verse, we see a Greek word that's only used one time in the whole New Testament. It's the word philosophia, philosophia. The idea with this is that it's a human understanding. It's a human wisdom. And, and we contrast that with revealed knowledge. With, we got human understanding over here and human wisdom over here. And then you've got revealed knowledge that comes from God over here. Two completely different things. So Paul and what he's doing is in, in telling these Colossian believers to reject this false philosophy, he's saying don't be kidnapped by human understanding. Don't be kidnapped by human knowledge, by human wisdom. You see, Paul knew that so often we turn away from what the Holy Spirit and the Word of God have revealed to us to try to pursue things that we believe should make sense according to human standards. So we try to believe things that, oh, wait, culture believes this. I should believe this too. But Paul's saying, don't do that. Stay away from that. Now, there's a perceived problem out there that many things about God don't make sense to our human finite minds, and so we should reject those things of God. And in a world and a culture in which we're told that it's got to make sense in order to live our lives according to it, a lot of times Christians feel this pressure to go back to human understanding and to reject the knowledge that can only be revealed by God. But listen, when we are given a new identity, our mind has got to change where now this human knowledge, this human knowledge is rejected or human wisdom is rejected and we pick up, we embrace the revealed knowledge of God. So what Paul's encouraging these believers to do is he's saying, don't be kidnapped into thinking that you have to use your inner lawyer. You know what an inner lawyer is? It's, it's, the, it's the voice inside your head that argues. Don't think that you've got to use that inner lawyer to accept the things of God. No. He's saying, get rid of this human understanding, this human knowledge, and embrace revealed word of God. Next, it says we are to reject empty deceit. Empty deceit. Now, this is really similar to that, that rejection of the, of the uh, false philosophies, okay? But there's a little bit of a difference here. The difference uh, that most scholars would tend to argue is that Paul is saying that philosophy of human understanding is, is yes, yeah, being described as empty, it is meaningless, it is deceptive at its very core, it's, it's, it's false, and at the end of the day, it is absolutely empty. There's nothing there, and it lies to you. It tries to say that there's something of substance here, and in reality, there is nothing of substance. It's all empty, deceit. The words empty deceit show us something about the human nature that's really important. It shows us that anything that is conceived in the human brain and is not in accordance with the revealed knowledge of God through the Holy Spirit or the Word of God is ultimately a fake and it is a fraud. Even if it's not bad in itself or by itself. If it goes against God's Word, if it goes against God Himself, then it is a knockoff from the truth. It's not truth itself. It's not truth. It's often unintentional purpose is to deceive the minds and the hearts of mankind. But what Paul's saying is reject this. Embrace what is real. All right, number three, we see that we're to reject human tradition. Human tradition. Now, these, these Colossian believers are kind of a, um, a little bit of a ragtag group of believers. 
Some of them are former Jews, or they have the, the Jewish heritage. Some of them are Gentiles who bring into the picture all these different religions from, from their, their background. And so all of a sudden they're coming together and they are worshiping under the truth of the gospel. But one of the things that's inevitable anytime we are, uh, we are, we are brought together in that way is that um, we oftentimes want to try to go back to the things that we thought before and the things that we said before, the things that we believed before. And so the, what was happening here was that these different Christians were trying to bring their past into their present. So for the Judaizers, they're saying, hey, you've got to be, you've got to be circumcised in order for you to be a true Christian. Well, that's, not, that's not true. Um, others are saying, hey, we've got to do this, we've got to do that in order to be a, a true Christian. But that is absolutely not true. They're trying to bring their human tradition into the picture to choke out the purity of the gospel. And it's not like it's on purpose. It's just happening. It's natural for that to happen. That's why we reject, that's why we fight against this idea of the, the kidnapping. Paul's response to this knowledge of what's happening is that the people in the church, he's saying, don't allow yourselves to be kidnapped by human traditions. Now, tradition can be a really good thing. Tradition can, can help steer us in the way we need to go, but at the same time, tradition can easily blind us from the purpose in which the church was placed here to begin with. Tradition often tells us that we have to do things a certain way, we have to talk a certain way, we have to act a certain way, we have to dress a certain way, and only then is God going to be pleased with us. Now, don't get me wrong, there are some things that are commanded of the New Testament church in the Bible that help shape what we do. And, and our tradition as a church is based off of, ideally, biblical models that we see, the commandments that we see in the New Testament. But I can't help but think when I read this and just ask myself, are there some things that I hold on to as non-negotiables? And in reality, all I'm doing is holding on to the human tradition that I've got. It's not according to God's word. It's one of those things that Paul's saying reject. Number four, reject the elemental spirits of the world. Reject the elemental spirits of the world. Now, the word elemental there refers to simple things, okay? Other translations use the, the term elemental principles, and I think that's a more accurate understanding here than the ESV gives. ESV says elemental spirits, but elemental principles is really the idea that, that that I believe is most true here. There's something to be said of knowledge that's gained by studying the things of this world, the things that God has created. But what Paul says here is don't let your mind and your life be kidnapped by the simplistic when there's something that's much greater out there for you to immerse yourselves in. The Word of God is not simple. All right? it, it, it's, not, it's not something that is, is surface level. It's not, it's not shallow. It's the word I'm looking for. The gospel is not shallow. Grace is not shallow. Mercy is not shallow. Everlasting, unending love is not shallow. The life that we find in Jesus is not shallow. Those are things that we were meant to immerse ourselves in, to study and to grow in the beauty and knowledge of our God and to dive deeper in our relationship with God. And what Paul's saying here is he's telling these believers to not be taken captive, to not be kidnapped by. He's telling them to reject the simplistic things of this world that have no bearing on eternity. 
Dive deep into the things that will give you true meaning, is what he's saying. All right, so there's four things to reject. There's the the false philosophies, there's the empty deceit, there's the human tradition, there's the elemental spirits or principles of this world. But why? Why do we reject those things? Why Why do we push them away? What value is there in rejecting those things? And that's where we find verses 9 through 15 showing us the value. Let's read that together. And as I read this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put some emphasis on a couple of words that pop up multiple times, and I want to see if you can catch the, uh, the emphasis here. Verse 9, for in him, did you catch some emphasis there? just want to make sure, all right? The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. All right. Here's a quiz for you. Where did I place the emphasis? In him, with him. In him, with him. We find that pop up seven times in those seven verses. If there is nothing else that you take away from this message today, then please don't forget what I'm about to say because your identity as a Christian is hinged on this. When your identity is found in Jesus, there is no room or no place for who you once were. When your identity is found in Jesus, there is no place for who you once were. I want to show you what I mean. Why do we reject the old identity? Well, the things that are mentioned here in in verses 9 through 15, it's because of those two little words, in him. So in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Verse 9 there, I love that. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The idea behind this is that when Jesus came to earth to fulfill the purpose that God gave him, he didn't only partially come. He wasn't partially God when he came. No, he's still fully God. He was also fully man. He didn't hold back his deity in any way. He didn't hold back his humanity in any way. He fully came as both. But what he did is he laid aside his characteristics, his nature as God, and he became a man. Kenneth Wiest says this about this phrase. He says, Paul is declaring that in the Son, in Jesus, there dwells all the fullness of the absolute Godhead. There were no mere rays of divine glory which gilded him, lighting up his person for a season and with splendor not his own. But he was and is absolute and perfect God. You say, well, what in the world does this have to do with rejecting those things that were mentioned before in verse 8? And here's my answer. It has everything to do with rejecting those things. What Paul's communicating to these Colossian believers is that when your identity is wrapped up in Jesus, 
There is no room for anything else because Jesus is all that you're ever going to need when it comes to living in your new identity as a believer. He is everything that you're going to need. This statement from Paul is not a statement about us as humans. It's a statement about who Jesus is. And this statement launches the reader into the rest of the passage where we find out who we are because our new identity is in the fullness of the God-man of Jesus. Here's a second point that's made here. In him, we have been filled. In him, we have been filled. Not only is Jesus everything needed to offer redemption, forgiveness, and sanctification, but when our identity is found in him, we have been filled in him. I want you to imagine yourself as a deep, dark pit of despair, okay? You are a black hole. If you were a tooth with a cavity, the dentist would say, you know what? Nope, that tooth's got to go because that hole is too deep. I'm not here to make you feel good about yourself, by the way. The reality is that at some point in our lives, that black hole, that empty void is every single one of us. We are completely empty with no way to fill ourselves up enough to obtain eternal life. And listen, we try. We try to, to bring into the picture any number of things that would help us feel fulfilled, but it's not going to work. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says this. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Folks, we have been filled. We have become partakers of the divine nature in Jesus, in Him. He's our new identity. It's not anything that we try to put in ourselves. He becomes our new identity. He fills us. Not only that, but we see also that our heart was circumcised. In Him, in Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That means that the old is cut away. What is not needed is cut out of our lives. Now, this is a really strong picture for these Judaizers. These are the ones in the Colossian church who are insisting that the new believers take on many of the old Jewish customs in order for their salvation to be complete. But Paul's saying, no, you're missing the point. Now that you're a believer and you have a new identity, your purity comes through what Jesus has done for you and in you, not because of what you can do for yourself. Then we see that a reason to reject the old identity is that in Jesus, we have been buried in baptism. We have been buried in baptism. There's the word buried there. Um, what does a burial typically accompany? Now, I say typically, but I, I should say, what does a burial always include? A body. A dead body. A burial always includes a dead body. There's a funeral because death has taken place. And life as that person knew it has ceased to exist. When we find our identity in Jesus, there is no room for the old identity. It has got to die. There is no alternative but for it to die. 
The power of the gospel is that Jesus has made a way for it to die. The old identity is gone. The new has come. This point and, um, and the next point that we're going to get to here in just a moment gives us a really clear picture of what this death looks like. How many of you have, um, have, have ever seen a baptism? That's pretty much most all of us, okay? We, we've seen a baptism. We know what happens with the, with the baptism. You, you lower somebody down into the water. Now, when I baptize a person, I have a phrase that I use every single time, and it goes something like this. Such and such person, because of your professed faith in Jesus, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And as I lower them into the water, I say, buried in the likeness of his death. Now, I'm going to hold George, the, 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 uh, the in, invisible person here for just a moment, okay? They're, they're under the water right now. But here's what's happened. Buried in the likeness of his death. And listen, as believers, that's exactly what has happened. We are being buried to the old self. We are dead to our old self. We put to death that old identity, but that's not the last part of the phrase. Because then as I start raising this person back up, I would say raised to walk in newness of life. This picture of buried in the likeness of his death, buried in the likeness of the death of of Jesus the way that he was buried. That's the way that we're identifying now. You get me? So this this new identity that we take on is getting rid of the old self, raised to walk in newness of life, just like Jesus was raised from the dead. We, it's the very very same picture, we are raised to walk in a new life. Look at verse 12 with me. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And that's the fifth point. We are raised through faith. In Jesus, we are raised from our death through our faith. It doesn't come through our works. It doesn't come because we're good enough. It doesn't come even because we have the best of intentions. And this verse is very clear that it sure doesn't come as a result of our own power. We are raised to life through faith in Jesus, and it is the power of God that makes it possible. Paul reiterates this in verses 13 and 14. And you, who were, were dead, there's, the, there's those words again, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And in these verses, we see that we are made alive, we are forgiven, we are redeemed, we are justified. We are made alive through our faith in Jesus. We are forgiven for the sin that made us enemies of God. We are redeemed from the inevitable death that accompanied our rebellion against God. We are justified because those legal demands of death are no longer registered on our account. And then this last point, the last reason we reject the old identity is because Satan is shamed and Jesus is triumphant. Because Satan is shamed and Jesus is triumphant. Verse 15, he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Satan and all of his powers of darkness 
that exist for the very purpose of overthrowing God are themselves overthrown through the person and work of Jesus. And when we enter into that new identity that's given to us by God through Jesus, the power that Satan had over us is taken away. He is put to open shame. He is defeated. I can't think of much better than this, much that sounds better than, uh, than the fact that Satan is defeated. There's coming a day in which he will be defeated completely. Right now, though, he still roams the earth. And he does everything he can to hold people in that old identity and to keep them from entering into the new identity. And Paul knows this, and he knows that there's these pressures all around us in this world, and he knows without a doubt that our, our, our tent is oftentimes going to be, oh, wait, but if I just try to fulfill myself or satisfy myself in this way I used to do it, there's that momentary happiness. And, and, and he knows that we try to do that, and he says, no, reject that. Like this kidnapping, fight against it, claw against it. Live in Jesus Live in the new identity. I'll go back to the statement that I made before of when your identity is found in Jesus, there is no room or place for who you once were. So let me ask you a question. In what ways are you trying to go back to live in your old identity? In what ways are you trying to go back and live in your old identity? Are you fighting against that old identity. That's the call that Paul has for us here. And next, in two weeks from now, as we come back together in Ephesians, we're going to read about, talk about what it means to mature in Christ, to, to grow up in Christ, to live in that new identity. Here's a very simple tool that you can use to live in that new identity. And it's caught up in the lyrics to a song that is, is old, and we actually sing a newer version of it here. We're going to in just a moment. It's the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So today, would you turn your eyes to Jesus? Because he will help you live in that new identity. Let's pray together. Well, Father, I thank you for this passage in, in Colossians. And I thank you for even the opportunity for us to look at it today. It wasn't the plan, but, but Father, I fully believe and know you've done a work in my heart because of this passage. And Father, I believe the same is probably taking place for others. Help us to reject the old identity and to live in the freedom that is Christ. And Father, may we day after day, hour after hour, turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. We love you, Father. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.